Listener Production. It's the school killing that has shocked Sydney and the whole nation. Cold and calculated, that is how the murder of 21-year-old Lily James is being described. Wanted tonight is this man, 24-year-old sportsman Paul Tyson. Her killing was in fact premeditated. The pair was dating but had recently split and tonight she is dead. The much-loved 21-year-old water polo coach Lily James beaten to death with a hammer in the school's gym toilet by a colleague she'd had a brief relationship with, 24-year-old fellow coach and former student Paul Tyson, who then messaged her dad from her phone and called the police before taking his own life. And one of the devastating things about this is that it wasn't the only partner murder that week. Actually, in the last 10 days of October, there were six women who died at the hands of partners or ex-partners which is way above the average, which is shocking itself, one a week. So what is going on? Why with all the awareness and all the changing conversations about partner violence and attitudes towards women, why can't we bring this horrifying statistic down? I'll interview the Minister for Women about that in our briefing. First, here are today's headlines. Hello, Tom. Hi, everyone. It is Katrina Blowers here with you. Friday, the 3rd of November. And making news today, the Victorian woman at the centre of a deadly mushroom lunch has spent the night in jail and will face court this morning after being charged with murder. I think it's particularly important that we keep in mind that at the heart of this, three people have lost their lives. Yeah, that's Detective Inspector Dean Thomas. Erin Patterson is charged with three counts of murder and five counts of attempted murder. The murder charges and two of the attempted murder charges all relate to the July 29 lunch where police allege she served a beef Wellington dish that contained death cap mushrooms to her former parents-in-law and another elderly couple. Three of the four of the people who attended that lunch at her home, Tom, uh, have all since passed on. Yeah, and so one really interesting part of the charges that were announced yesterday was that three of those five attempted murder charges don't relate to that lunch. They actually relate to three other incidents between 2021 and 2022, where it's believed her ex-husband was allegedly poisoned. So, It'll be really interesting to find out more about that as this continues. And just a huge story. It's making headlines all around the world. And the inspector, Dean Thomas, talked about that in the press conference yesterday, saying he'd never seen anything like this. And he made it made the point several times, warning the media to be very careful about misinformation and speculation related to this case because it's an ongoing investigation and that spreading of misinformation could jeopardise it. Yeah, I've been involved in other murder trials that have received so, so much public attention and there's always a really fine line to tread um, in reporting on what's happened when there's such acute interest and, my goodness, hasn't there been a huge amount of interest in this one and uh, not jeopardising a trial. And Australia's most wanted alleged organised crime boss is in police custody in Turkey. So Hayan Ayik is the alleged boss of the Comanchero Biker Gang and was arrested in Istanbul, along with 36 others as part of an international crime ring uh, involved uh, in drug trafficking, homicide and money laundering. 
Australian authorities have been looking for this man, known as Big Hucks, for more than a decade. He's allegedly one of the biggest drug importers in the world. One problem, though, Nine's reporting he can't be extradited to Australia because of his Turkish citizenship. Yeah, it's alleged um, this guy, Big Hux, is worth around $800 million. And as part of this uh, operation, police have seized assets worth around $250 million. And that includes things like cash and real estate. So, uh, yeah, a, a very big operation involving the AFP and Turkish authorities. Workers continuing to get 65 trapped Aussies out of Gaza. It comes after 20 managed to flee after the opening of a key border crossing with Egypt, along with two family members and a permanent resident. The crossing opened yesterday to allow foreign nationals and some badly injured Palestinians to leave the conflict zone. And there's a new song from the Beatles. It's called Now and Then, and it's only been possible thanks to AI. Now. Yeah, wow. So that's the song. It was originally recorded by John Lennon on cassette tape in the 70s, um, but they hadn't been able to do anything with it because it couldn't be separated from the piano on that cassette recording. They said, this is the sound of John's voice. A few seconds later, or however long it took, and there it was, John's voice, crystal clear. I know it's true. It's all because of you. The new technology's been able to separate the voice from the rest of that music. Um, the track also uh, has some guitar parts from the late George Harrison, and that comes from a session in 1995 uh, when they first tried to develop the song. And there's new parts on the track from Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. Wow. That's, I love this. That's a- yeah. AI for good. AI for good for once. Um, I was having a look at some of the other big artists that are, are meant to be sitting on, you know, stacks and stacks of, uh, or their families are, um, stacks and stacks of unreleased material since their deaths. People like David Bowie, Tupac, Jimi Hendrix, um, George Michael, they're, they're all believed to have recorded heaps of stuff that has never seen the light of day. And maybe AI will make this possible too. Yeah. I just think about John Lennon. Um, <laughs> he, um, I don't know if he'd want this track out there. At times he was, you know, quite cynical about the music industry or, you know, and he was a real perfectionist. Um, anyway, I guess we'll never know, but yeah. I'm a huge Beatles fan, so I'll take whatever I can get. Mm. All right. Catch you later, Katrina. I'm about to interview the Minister for Women, Katie Gallagher. Katie Gallagher is the Minister for Women. Minister, thanks for joining us on The Briefing. Thanks for having me on. What was your reaction when you heard about the murder of Lily James? It's, you know, everyone's worst nightmare, I think, uh, for her family, for herself. A devastating loss of life. Um, it was just horrific. I think everybody right around the country, which is, I think, why it's got so much attention, just were completely shocked and devastated by what what that poor young woman went through and what her family will continue to go through and what the school community and all of those students are now having their life touched with this and having that lasting impact. Mm. So as the Minister for Women, you're leading the government's work to try and stop the 
devastating level of partner murders in Australia. And I guess to make change across the country, you need to drill down on what are the common factors in these killings. And when you look at the the basic facts of the Lily James murder, it was by someone that she knew, someone she'd been dating before trying to break up with, that it appears to have been premeditated. We're learning that he borrowed a car and bought a hammer. Um, We know that it happened at a place of work and then that he took his own life afterwards. So of the main factors in this case, which of those are quite common and which of them aren't? Certainly the prevalence and level of um, violence that women are subjected to at the hands of intimate partners or former partners is extraordinarily high in this country. I think for young people, you know, for those aged around the the age of Lily James and and teenagers, in some of the latest surveys, it's around 30% of of that age group are saying that they have experienced some level of intimate partner violence or, you know, former partner violence. Obviously, being killed by that former partner or partner is, you know, at the extreme end, but there's a lot of violence that happens before that um, often. And so that, I think, is unfortunately, uh, in the case of Lily and many other thousands of women across the country, something Uh, that they experience. I think, you know, the breakup, obviously, or a a relationship breakdown often causes, you know, an increase in the violence that women are experiencing. And it is predominantly women. I know there are examples where it's women violent towards men, but predominantly it is the other way. Uh, So there are certainly features from what I've read about um, Lily James and her experience that are quite common. I think there's Mm. also some things that would be unique and different. I mean, the workplace, you know, we know that women aren't always safe in their workplace and that impacts on colleagues as well. And I think we know that it happens at every, across the community in every strata of the community, whether Mm. you be, you know, on low incomes, high incomes, whether you live in one part of Sydney or in the Northern Territory or in my backyard in Canberra, we know that violence against women is right across the country and nobody really can believe that they are not going to be touched by it. And I think that's one of the issues when we sort of look at the research and things, I think about 90% of Australians when they're surveyed believe that violence against women is a problem, but then only less than half of that believe that it's a problem in their area. So there is a bit of a disconnect about who it happens to and where it happens. um, And we need to do more work on that. Is part of that misconception that it happens to poorer people and not wealthier people? Because obviously these two individuals were at a a very elite private school. Well, yeah, I think it's easy to sort of think, yeah, I've I've read about it, it's a problem, but I don't think it happens to me or my family or my friends. Um, And that's part of the issue is that until, you know, it's really only in the last decade that we've been having a lot more conversations about domestic violence before and family violence before it was much more of a private matter that happened behind closed doors. Mm. And there has been, importantly, a very significant and positive shift into saying, no, this is not a private matter. This is something that we have to work on, we have to address, and we have to try and change the root causes that lead to violence being such a problem in this country. That is positive, but we've got, 
as we can see from the number of women who have been killed uh, in the last month, seven women across the country who've lost their lives in October, including Lily, that shows the prevalence of this problem. And that's, as I said, at the extreme end, when somebody has lost a life, there is hundreds of thousands of women who will be experiencing violence or control at some level uh, in their lives right across the country every day, every minute of every day in this country. I was interested in the statement you just made about it sort of shifting in our minds from a, a very private matter to something we need to deal with publicly. And yes, as part of that, I guess, growing awareness, we've seen more of an effort by governments to try and change the culture around this. But so far, we're not really shifting the needle on the numbers. We're looking at approximately 50 of these partner homicides a year, about one a week. And as you said, seven last month, so well above the average. So is it just a lag effect or is this change in conversation and awareness actually not doing anything? You know, I'm someone that believes in that you just keep pushing towards the change you want to see. And I think the conversation is an important start. Raising awareness of it, the extent of it, is an important part of of shifting the dial. But I also think that because it's such a pervasive and endemic kind of part of our Australian community life, that we can't expect it to change overnight. And some of the most significant changes we need to make is getting to young people, getting into the schools early and really putting an effort into the respectful relationships, you know, type of education so that, you know, from the earliest point, we are trying to change some of the attitudes that exist in this country, Mm. um, which are founded in gender inequality uh, and then kind of impact women and girls through their lives in one way or another that change can't happen overnight. I think having said that, I think that we're getting much better at making sure we've got services and supports for women to leave violent situations. So, you know, making the social security system work better to support women, Mm. making sure we're, you know, giving the right support so that women and children uh, can leave without kind of some financial constraint on them. So making sure childcare works for them. So, We can come at it a a range of different ways and we're trying to do that and working with the states and territories because obviously they have a huge role to play, particularly on the um, frontline services and the police side of things. Uh, And we do, importantly, have every single government in Australia on the same page about what has to happen and all pulling in the same direction and I think that makes a difference as well. And the other area, I think, is this focus on perpetrators. So instead of, you know, the discussion which has always been, why didn't she leave? You know, which I think we've all heard before, you know, into why doesn't he stop? And so a focus on perpetrator behaviour and investment in that um, to make sure that we are recognising that men and boys are a big part of the solution here and providing the right services and supports for them and also through the legal system and the police particularly, making sure information about perpetrators is available. So we're talking about, I guess, logistical, legal, police intervention on the perpetrator side, but also support for people trying to get away from these violent situations. But as you touched on, a big element of this is also about cultural and attitudinal change around gender roles and the behaviour of of mostly men who are, who are more likely to be the perpetrators. And it just makes me wonder how much 
how much work, you know, in the attitudinal gender space can really make a difference if someone is just going to end up crossing over into the space where they could do this kind of thing. He's obviously just gone to the darkest place a human mind could ever go. Is there any real way you can prevent someone doing that through cultural change or education? You know, it's hard to talk about specific cases and understanding what led to that happening in that individual instance for for him, but it's the biggest opportunity we have to change what's happening in this country. And it is long and hard work, but we have to get to boys, particularly in school, and educate, and, and both boys and girls, educate them about respectful relationships, about consent, around attitudes towards those social norms and gender roles, about who does what. I mean, all of that is part of addressing the prevalence of violence, gender-based violence in this country. It has to be because I think there's a lack of understanding about gender inequality in this country as well, and that's linked to this. So I think a lot of people would say, oh, boys and girls have the same opportunities and life that are presented to them if they've had the same schooling, et cetera. And that's just not the case. I mean, whether you look at violence, you know, income, caring roles, jobs, right across the economy, um, you can see that there is difference between men and women and women are often, you know, earn less, retire with less, have less assets, have less financial security. So part of it's about addressing that, but we have to reach kids basically and, and educate them. And I think part of what we've also got to do is adapt as the situation changes. So we know that through social media, for example, you know, there's a lot of social media personalities who perpetuate those harmful gender stereotypes and, and actually condone violence against women. And we know that there's a lot of boys who are watching that and who look up to those individuals um, as, you know, mentors or leaders. And so as I guess society changes and we have to deal with how that's changing too. So we have to reach into, you know, and try and get to boys to counter some of what they're seeing um, on social media platforms because, you know, if we don't, they will leave or bring up another generation where these types of stereotypes and behaviour are seen as acceptable when they're not. Does that necessarily link to the really extreme stuff? I, I get that those changes in attitude might, I guess, change some of the stuff around maybe at the coercive control end or those those different elements. Do you think, though, that necessarily or is there any proof that that links to stopping the more like completely dark, extreme stuff like we've witnessed? Well, it has to be part of it. And attitudes towards women and disrespect for women and views about, you know, women being less than you or, or deserving violence, you know, addressing that is part of it. Mm. You know, it's not the only thing. That's the longer term, harder work, but we have to change that. The other parts are, you know, how we provide frontline services, how we support women to leave those situations and how we get the justice system to work and act as a deterrent. And all of that work is happening. So it's not one solution. It's right across the board. And we have to do everything we can to make sure women aren't put in the position that too many women are put in every minute of every day. That was Katie Gallagher, the Minister for Women. Uh, Coming up in your feed tomorrow, the weekend briefing uh, with Antoinette Latouf. Antoinette, who are you interviewing? We have actress Warawoy Hick, the Wentworth star, who's gone from her prison role to a sexy new role in SBS's series Erotic Stories. This is a really fun chat. 
And because I am a nosy person by profession, I get Warawoi to reveal something that she has never shared with the world before. Not even her parents. Nobody knows. It's both frightening and hilarious. She's a delight to chat to, so definitely check it out. All right, that's your weekend briefing. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our hardworking team here at The Briefing. Hope you have an awesome weekend. Listener.